Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Joao Chavez talks to Dr. Lloyd Barba about his new book, Sowing the Sacred, Mexican Pentecostal Farmworkers in California. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza. My name is João Chavez. I am Associate Director for Programming at the Hispanic Theological Initiative and an Assistant Professor at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And I'm here today with the one and only Lloyd, Dr. Lloyd Barba, a good friend who is Assistant Professor of Religion and Core Faculty in Latinx and Latin American Studies at Amherst College. Um, the author of Sowing the Sacred, Mexican Pentecostal Farm Workers in California, published by Oxford University Press, which we'll be discussing today. Uh, those of us who follow Lloyd in social media and in different settings know that he is also a dad to Danielito, who brings joy to his family, but also whenever he shares something uh, on social media, it brings joy to many, many other people. Uh, he's editor of other volumes, co-editor, uh, and has other projects going on. So he's a, a prolific and amazing scholar, and most importantly, a wonderful human being. And it is a joy to be here today with him discussing his book, Sowing the Sacred. Good to see you, my brother. Good to see you, Zhao. Thank you for that introduction. It gives me a whole lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, let's jump in here, Lloyd. And, uh, let, let me ask you about, about this book, uh, in, and I have some specific questions, but perhaps a good place for us to start is if you just set this up for us, like why sowing the sacred, um, you know, how does that connect to your own trajectory, your own formation, and your own commitments in and beyond the academy? Yeah, Jean, thank you. For, uh, thanks for the question. Um, so why sowing the sacred? On the one hand, there are um, a few kind of streams that come together in this work. Uh, one of them is uh, kind of the longer trajectory really uh, stems from undergraduate work. So I was a history and religious studies major. I remember a conversation I had with one of my undergrad mentors who told me, you know, Lloyd, if, if you want to go into uh, graduate school and continue your studies, really think about doing something around religion and race um, in, in the U.S. context. And so I took up a study um, as part of my senior capstone project on uh, race and religion within my hometown of Stockton, California, and I studied the Pentecostal tradition there. Uh, that led to bigger questions about, well, what's been studied uh, regarding Latino Pentecostalism? And soon thereafter, um, started you know going through the databases, right, as, as a good researcher does, I came across the work of Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, uh, read her book, and learned that there Again, I didn't have the kind of framing for it then, but I realized there's this kind of incipient um, uh, scholar, body of scholarship around uh, Latino Pentecostalism. And I would find out, you know, in coming years that more broadly, it's it's this field now that we're calling, you know, Latino religion, a Latinx religion. And um, in my, again, early years in undergrad, I learned about the work of uh, Daniel Ramirez, and I wanted to study under him and learned he was at the University of Michigan. And that's where I ended up for graduate study. And... Well, Zhao, one of the more um, 
the, the bigger revelations that came to me was when I started to do work in American studies, looking at uh, Chicano history, I realized how much of it revolved around labor. And I get it, you know, part of a, a labor diaspora into the U.S. Uh, these Mexicans are part of a labor diaspora into the U.S. And, you know, there's, again, uh, numerous books on farm workers in California, or again, more broadly, labor uh, history of Mexican um, in the Southwest in California. And again, I, I was already intent on studying religion, and I just couldn't help but to think, I wonder what the religious uh, scene is on some of these farm working camps. I wonder uh, what's happening, you know, beyond uh, work in their daily lives. And so I think you get a, a few different snapshots into that world through this book. Wonderful. No, thank thank you for that. It it struck me that, like you mentioned, there are so many different streams of scholarship that this book this book touches at different levels. And then, and for those of us who study either minoritized communities or or or, uh, or immigrant communities or, or communities in a, in with sort of a transnational lens and you do some of each of those things in sowing the sacred to different extents but you're also bringing as you mentioned uh labor history and chicano history um and uh in in fascinating um kind of account uh and i see because i as I, I read the book i read you doing two things one and like kind of really telling the story that needs to be told right which is a may uh, the, the story of these uh, farm workers, apostolical farm workers that uh, understudied and they uh, such an important story to tell. Another function that the book seems to be challenging readers to do, um, you know, is kind of broadening also their imagination around uh, what U.S. religious history is. Um, and uh, could you talk a little bit more about that because you in some places you do that more explicitly in other places just the telling of the story does that kind of work um I, and i i wonder if you could kind of just narrate a little bit about about uh the kind of intervention or broadening uh of uh of traditional understandings of what religious history in the u.s is via your work here Thanks, Joe. It's it's interesting. Uh, this year, 2023, we're 25 years out from a volume you might know very well, Tom Tweed's Retelling U.S. Religious History. And there's this all, for, for at least for me in my field, all important chapter in that book. I believe it's chapter five, Lori Maffley Kipps, Eastward Ho. Uh, the the main uh, point of, of the chapter is, is to See, what does it look like, as opposed to westward ho, right? It's eastward ho. What does it look like if we tell uh, U.S. religious history from the from the perspective of the Pacific Rim or the Pacific or, or the, the perspective of the U.S. West looking east? And that's kind of the question I had in mind, again, when, when I was doing this kind of work is, if we put California at the center of this study, and not just California, but we put Mexican Americans, not just Mexican Americans, the majority of whom are Catholics, but we look at a minoritized group, that is uh, Pentecostals, um, what different impression do we get about the field of U.S. religious history? What different impressions do we get about the fields of, you know, uh, Chicano history, uh, Mexican American history? 
And one of my takeaways was that this uh, telling or this historical telling of, of this uh, minoritized religious group, it challenges some of our assumptions about, you know, who's included into the story of American religion. It also challenges the assumptions about, um, you know, what was a life of farm workers like, um, you know, everyday life. Of course, not that everyone enjoyed, uh, you know, partaking of some of the moments of intense joy that some of the farm workers I studied uh, were able to partake of, but it does sort of challenge again um, the, the perspective of everything in U.S. religious history starts from the East and it looks West. Let's just center the West in this study. Uh, let's center again a minoritized group and a minoritized uh, religious and racial group. No, that is great. Uh, and and I and I think that the another thing that, that your book does, and, and this is a, in some ways a recurring um, theme that you recognize, right? It is that when um, scholars think about race and religion in the U.S., uh, and even just the race, uh, the, the, the discourse of, of race relations in the U.S., it is often reduced to a black and white binary um, and, uh, and kind of overlooks, as you mentioned in your book, um, in a, a whole sector um, of, uh, of that dynamic that, that problematizes things. You say it in your book, and I'll read a part of it here. Uh, you say Mexicans throughout the borderlands from Texas to California faced an array of legal, economic, political, and social forms of racism, disenfranchisement, disqualification from citizenship, usurious taxes, usurpation of land grants, segregation, relegation to the lowest paid and most opprobrious work, and in many sites, lynching, police violence, and vigilante rule. And so I think that's a kind of powerful summary of uh, of this other aspect of religion and race in the U.S. that seems to continue to become even more prominent in light of the projections in terms of the U.S. demography, right? Where the Latinx populations, of which the Mexican, Mexican-American population is by far the largest, continues to grow. Uh, and projected to be at almost 30% in just a few decades. Um, where do you see those uh, that the, the particular intervention going in terms of, uh, again, the discourse and the way in which race in the US is thought about and taught? Did you intentionally have that particular broadening in mind? Uh, do you think there's still more work to be done that? So where does this book um, comes into that narrative particularly? Uh, Zhao, I think you're you're hitting a spot on there. So one of the, I mean, I, I agree with the historian Patricia Limerick, who describes the West something. I'm going to paraphrase it here, but one of the most interesting uh, meeting zones on planet Earth, in that you have the convergence of folks from um, Asian countries. You also have folks who, yes, they do move you know, eastward from the U.S. You have indigenous folks. You have the northward migration um, from Mexico, and of course, you know, further down. Um, further along in the century, you have folks from a much broader world even. So I take the American West as this place of really fascinating um, convergence around race. So again, the, the religious historian in me is also always wondering, well, you know, what are the stories to be told about religion? And that's, again, one of the reasons why I think this, um, this scholarship of, of race and religion 
can learn quite a bit by centering the uh, the American West or centering California. Um, as far as this uh, uptick in uh, the Latinx population, as you mentioned, you know, this story that I tell, it's from, I mean, the 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 main dates are from about 1916 and 1966. That is the denomination I study, uh, the Apostolic Assembly of the Faith in Christ Jesus. That's the story they tell, right? Uh, they celebrate their uh, Jubilee year in 1966. But one can stretch it back to about 1906 if we want to center the importance of the Azusa Street narrative in the minds of Pentecostal folks. So again, this is a study. Uh, we're not we're just one year past the landmark uh, Immigration Act in 1965, um, in which, again, immigration is up to a much broader stream. Um, some of the heavy restrictions dating back to the early 1920s are lifted. But we have, during this intense immigration regime, uh, the continued uh, and even replenished migration or immigration of Mexicans. So... You know this literature uh, really well, Zhao, about you know uh, some of the sociological uh, literature about religion in the U.S. Um, you might recall about, gosh, it's almost 10 years ago now, uh, this Latino Reformation, right? It was on Time magazine, right on the cover, the praying hands, the Latino Reformation, and which is a good provocative question. But we have to look to earlier uh, movements, such as the ones that I, the one that I studied, to see okay, if we're calling a Latino Reformation in 2013, and I get it, you know, folks are anticipating uh, the 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, the language it obtains um, about, you know, in the last decade or so. But what are the earlier uh, networks of Latino religion that are set up that receive immigrant populations as they arrive? Of course, you know, quite important in the Pentecostal world is Assemblies of God, but also uh, really important is the, the movement that I study, that by the time we get to 2013, this Latino Reformation, these folks have been around for about 100 years already. So again, it's, it's um, a deep contextualization in, in, on the uh, topic of Latinx religion. Well, that, that, that is, that's great. So, and you, you, you mentioned a couple of times already, uh, apostolicos or, or oneness Pentecostals uh, as being minoritized in some ways in light of their Mexican identity in the US, but then also in other ways because of their non-Catholic identity. And then if one could add an, another way within the world of Pentecostalism itself for not being Trinitarian Pentecostal. Right? Could, could you tell us a little more about the group, what, who are these apostolicos that, that you're studying and writing about? Great question. So on the one hand, as you mentioned, Zhao, you have that they're a minoritized group because of uh, race, uh, um, also because of their outside religious status as Pentecostals. But within the world of Pentecostalism, they're also a minoritized group. Um, so it's that, that sense of being outsiders is compounded doubly, triply, and even quadruply, perhaps. So uh, the one is Pentecostals. And again, these are folks who are um, in the trenches as this group is, is arising. So you have this decisive date that's known among uh, historians of Pentecostalism. And again, that's a field that I deal with uh, quite a bit here in the book, uh, Pentecostal History. This key date of 1916, in which a group of uh, Pentecostals walk out of the Assemblies of God. Walking out is one way to put it. Being forced out is another way to put it. Calling it an exodus is maybe the most neutral way of putting it. Um, the group that walks out is about a third to a 
quarter of the ministers. And they walk out because they are unable to reach uh, any kind of agreement or even theological amenability uh, between these two camps. So you have the group that walks out is one is, or one is Pentecostals. Their, their two main objections are these. Number one, um, an objection to the teaching of the Trinity. God is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, and so on. They, they have this idea that God is one, radically one. And some folks have described it as a type of modalism where, um, you know, that God, uh, uh, th that Jesus is uh, the, the fullness of, of this Godhead. And um, God operates as a father in the creation of the world, the son in the redemption of the world, and the Holy Spirit in dealing with mankind. So again, to reject a historical, such a historical doctrine like the Trinity, you can see why it causes a rift. And on top of that, though, um, these one as Pentecostals are largely rejecting, again, by this point in, in the mid-19-teens, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, opting for baptism. It must be performed, again, with, these, with this kind of performative language of being baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus, or some kind of variation of that. Um, no. These are the two, uh, yeah, points of difference, and uh, some of their Trinitarian detractors in in the years immediately following the the, the Exodus in 1960 called them the Jesus only people, and some would retort, "No, we're not Jesus only; we're Jesus everything." <laughs> you can you can imagine, right, the kind of back and forth theological quadlibets that arise uh, in that sort of context. But yeah, they're. Uh, it's not a pretty picture uh, but between uh, the oneness and Trinitarian groups, especially in these early years after the rift. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. So then you you, you start talking about or writing about uh, the, the history of these apostolicals in California, uh, who in, in, in many ways, and I think that was one of the many um, uh, interest, very interesting, fascinating kind of approaches that you took to write those stories. Because in many ways, what you do is kind of narrate how they scriptualize reality in some ways, and the kind of uh, how the, this group, as a hermeneutic community, uh, travels uh, these these different areas of California, uh, being seen in some ways by the majority culture as laboring bodies mm -hmm. right and and particular kinds of laboring bodies as that but whose internal workings are in some ways um resilient uh and creative and that relies on this particular um scripturalized and sacralized lenses to give them the kind of resilience resistance creativity uh, and in some places, even joy uh, in 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 part of their uh, of of their way of being in the world. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how that uh, plays around then, and 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 kind of how their movements within you know the 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 California uh, the California landscape kind of informed their particular religious practices and interpretations, uh, but in also in turn, how they see those movements and those places differently because of their own uh, status as a particular hermeneutic community that see things and talk about things and sing about things. 
um, in a particular way. Does does that does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I spend a good deal of the intro of the introduction trying to frame, um, or you know, I realize that I'm trying to put different uh, scholarly communities in conversation. So I do spend uh, quite a bit in the book talking about the different kinds of discrimination that Mexican Americans face, but beyond that, also the conditions of farm labor at this time. So at this time, you have the dissolution of the, uh, at least in California, industrial agriculture, you have the dissolution of the idea of the farmer, right? Um, the categories that are operative here are that a farm worker who is in the lowest, you know, in the lowest rung um, of, of work at the time in California and the farm operator. So the idea of the farmer, you know, who with his family develops his, uh, the yeoman farmer with the, along with his family uh, is able to sustain um, the, the, the family farm and provide and so on. That's not the picture we have. Um, and I look at that context to understand um, the idea of sacred and profane in the new light. So I take the profane as that context. You mentioned a little bit already. It's the sickness inducing. It's the fatal environment. It's the environment, uh, you know, in which there's polluted waters. Uh, there's pesticide spraying of farm workers. That's what I take as profane in this context. And what I take as sacred is the creativity and the cultural production of farm workers. So to give you one example is the vast uh, musical world that they produce. They produce their own hymns. And again, this is a story that I talk a little bit about in chapters two. You know, when they go out to baptize, they often baptize in these grower controlled and also heavily polluted canals. And when they do so, they, this is the most sacred ritual. Baptism, again, baptism in Jesus' name that had set them uh, at odds with their Trinitarian counterparts. This is the paramount ritual. And it's being performed in places we might not expect. And the songs that they would sing are songs that they themselves had written. And if you want to get more into the music, that's where you read uh, Daniel Ramirez's book, Migrating Faith. Uh, what I find interesting, though, is, you know, they're more than just uh, bodies of labor. And we can, we can always assume that we can say that. But, you know, what are the stories that really highlight that, that show them in moments of, uh, you know, shared mutual aid, that show them in moments of um, experiencing joy? or in moments in which they're confronting suffering, to kind of borrow from Tom Tweed's uh, 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 theory around, um, uh, his theory of religion, that is. And just to, I'll give you one quick example of the way in which they scripturalize their experience. And a lot of it happens in many cases in retrospective material, so in, in their own kind of historical material, or in the way that they tell their stories, even in the oral histories I conduct, you get this idea of like scripturalizing. So... Scripturalizing is what Jacqueline Hidalgo, um, I'm not so sure if she's already talked about this on a, a Open Plaza podcast, uh, but she talks about uh, scripturalizing as being a homing device. As uh, we could, you know, uh, uh, in this case, I look at photographs as scriptures because the photographs help them create a sense of home. It helps them anchor themselves, you know, helps the apostolicos to anchor themselves within these uh, hermeneutic communities to interpret their life experiences. And one of the my favorite um, stories of like of this really really obvious kind of scripturalizing is that of uh, the movement patriarch Antonio Nava. So there, he tells a story of when he arrives to um, actually when when he receives this call to preach, um, he receives this really intense vision. And I uh, 
have the transcript of, of uh, his telling of that here in, in chapter one of the book. And ultimately, he is directed by the Holy Spirit to go preach in, in Yuma. He goes to Yuma, and he encounters his sister, who has this very advanced stage cancer on her face. Uh, you know, in the description, it's cancer is so advanced that her face had been disfigured. And Antonio Nava goes uh, along with his um, um, with his uh, mentee, uh, Ramon Ocampo, and she is healed, and afterwards a revival breaks out. And as I'm reading the accounts, I couldn't help but to think of how much discursively this is tied, again, even in the very telling of this history, how much it's tied to Acts 14, the story of the healing of the man in Lystra, um, in which Paul and his companion, right, they go out, uh, they heal uh, the man uh, who is uh, lame, uh, they heal the man in Lystra, and afterwards a revival breaks out. The language is there. Then from Yuma, while in Yuma, uh, Nava is offered a lot to build a church. And the Holy Spirit divinely countermands that offer. And he sees in the vision where he says, go to Calexico and help them. Calexico is right over the border from Yuma, Arizona. Uh, in, so Calexico is in the uh, Imperial Valley in the U.S. That's another page out of the book of Acts in which, you know, the passage many people know as the Macedonian call where Paul sees a vision of a man from Macedonia who yells out, come and save us, come and help us. And you just see that over and over in this material. And I thought, this is not just creativity, but this is a kind of sacred production. Are not uh, um, aimless wanderers. There's intentionality and focus. Uh, there's intentionality and purpose to their um, wanderings uh, in in the from one valley to the next. Thank you, thank you. That's that that is fascinating. I, I mean, there's so much to talk about in this book. Um, so, so in the sacred. Mexican Pentecostal farm workers in California uh, by Lloyd Barba. If uh, it just those of you who are listening, if you if you haven't gotten the book, I mean it's just a fascinating book. I mean we'll, that we we'll, could talk forever about this. Um, I have so many questions, uh, so I'll contain myself here and, and uh, jump a few steps and talk about this. In perhaps uh, for for some readers surprising character that shows up uh, eventually in the book, Cesar Chavez, uh, who one might not expect to see in a history of, uh, of um, you know, Pentecostal farm workers in California. Um, and then he shows up there um, in, in the story uh, in some really interesting ways and overlooked ways that kind of highlight how groups that might be seen as having little to say in regards to their influence in broader U.S. history also can surprisingly have uh, a role that uh, that uh, people don't necessarily know about unless they're looking at them. So uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so here we have them. Uh, you know, Chicano history's beloved son, Cesar mm -hmm. Chavez. Um, yeah, in a place you might not expect. In a, um, and again, it, some of this has to do with the fact that, you know, so much of Chavez's um, work, and again, rightfully so, it's understood within the context of the farm workers movement of the 1960s. Um, so, gee, where to start with this? Um you know, the, the storyteller in me wants to go back uh, and tell you how this, how it kind of sort of uh, came across these primary source documents and talk about those. But 
I'll just take you to the world of Chavez. So, you know, he um, he makes a name for himself um, on a national stage uh, with the different grape worker strikes in the, in the mid 1960s. Um, but he mentions um, to um, one of his bio to one of his biographers, Jacques Levy, uh, in 1975, um, that he was at a Pentecostal church in Madeira. And it's kind of funny because the term Pentecostal gets mishandled. It, it's misspelled, right? So like this kind of a funny thing that happens in his publication. Um, he goes, he ends up in the Pentecostal church in Madeira um, in 1954. So this is um, well over 10 years before that famous pilgrimage from Delena to Sacramento. Um, and 10 years before, well over 10 years before he has communion with uh, Robert Kennedy. So again, before those kind of iconic Chavez moments, here he is in a small Central Valley town in California not working with farm workers, but actually um, doing a couple of things. On the one hand, he's helping a family with an immigration uh, problem. And this is in the context of Operation Wetback, which was, it was officially called, in which is a deportation of uh, Mexicans. Um, and he's also working in Fresno to, uh, to um, with uh, some discrimination had happened in some voting polls. Okay, so... He's in Madeira, which is a small farm work, a farming community uh, north of Fresno. And I'm going to just read the quote to you that I drew, and I have um, in the opening of chapter five. So this is from Chavez. He says to his biographer, he's saying here, um, so in that little Madeira church, I observed everything going on about me that could be useful in organizing. Although there was no more than 12 men and women, there was more spirit there than when I went to mass, where there were 200. And through some archival uh, records uh, at the uh, uh, in the Chavez archive at uh, Wayne State University, um, started to uh, connect some of these uh, dots. And it turns out that he was at a Pentecostal church, as you mentioned, but it happened to be one of the churches affiliated with the group that I study in my book, the Apostolic Assembly of Faith in Christ Jesus. And Chavez mentions this again. By the time he's writing this in 75, this is almost this is over two decades after his initial impression. And many of us today remember the farm workers movement uh, and their very successful protests because of the creative genius, right, to be able to integrate music. There's this kind of uh, lore even that's developed uh, around Chavez um, in, in the music. Uh, there are corridos of Cesar Chavez and so on and so forth. And it's, yeah, he drew inspiration from Pentecostals. They're really demonstrative style of worship. It's the waving of their hands. It's the shouts of hallelujah, or hallelujah, right? It's become one of the terms that uh, the outsiders call uh, apostolicos, as I mentioned in chapter five of the book. Uh, it's the speaking in tongues. Again, it's a very um, uh, demonstrative worship uh, that Chavez uh, latches onto and realizes something different is going on here with these Pentecostals. Um, and he credits him for uh, that uh, uh, organizing genius, <laughs> or at least yeah. that, that that technique. Yeah, and it's striking, you know, looking at the pictures, the many, many just fascinating pictures in this book, because as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, he used photographs very intentionally to, to do a couple of things for you. One is kind of to you know, help tell the story, and, and but also showing how those photographs were used intentionally by some of those uh, apostolicos themselves to kind of trace, you know, some of their 
of their uh, stories. Uh, it is often erroneously, erroneously, in my estimation, uh, said that Pentecostal communities um, often tend to be uh, fall into temptation of being ahistorical, right? Meaning not, uh, you know, as much concerned with tracing history according to the standards of you know, uh, storytelling that, that you know, uh, we might have as academic historians, uh, preferring nevertheless um, narrating their stories via these other means. Uh, they are scripturalized, sacralized, but that don't tell uh, the, the, a story that is critical in the sense of, uh, of um, uh, you know, academic historians you do. And I think you showed really well how those things are not mutually exclusive and they can go hand in hand in some ways that are, there are, um, you know, uh, again, uh, fascinating, they're recognized that sometimes the function of these memorialization, memorializations that happen within those communities have uh, a, a, a particularly fascinating and um, important functions in just their survival, their thriving, um, and um, and you know the again the way in which they um, they construct their identity and a lot of those pictures there there's lots of women and lots of bands, right? Um, you do mention how women are a backbone of this community's survival and thriving, and uh, we talked about Cesar Chavez music comes into being. I know you pointed to Dan Ramirez's work, which is really important in terms of. Uh, that as well, but there is a lot of music uh, here too. Um, so um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, music and the many bands there in here and, and all the, just looking at the pictures, but also reading the story, but also, uh, you know, so uh, women and how, you know, they, they were leaders in these communities uh, in, in particular ways. So when you look at apostolicals uh, in general, uh, what role did music and and, and women leadership took uh, in their maintenance and thriving of those uh, of those communities? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. You know, it, this doesn't seem to be the the natural um, or or the logical connective thread here, but in a word, material culture. That's what connects these two. So. In doing the research for this book, um, I didn't realize initially how much I would have to dive into some of the uh, the, the scholarship on uh, material history and material culture. And there is this, uh, again, this connective tissue within that um, between music and even, again, the the the, uh, the, the foundational role of women into this movement. So in, the, in chapter five of the book, I talk about how um, music itself, um, is a material process um, in that there's a reception of music and there's also importantly, you know, the memory of music. What what did the musical groups look like? What things did they wear? Um, and, what, and what kind of uh, places did they perform? And some of that is captured in the photographs. So it's kind of, again, the material culture is not just the, the, the object of study itself, but it's also the containers that hold these objects of study. So in this case, it's photographs, or in some cases, how people reflect in oral histories about um, their their memories. So, around music, what, um, 
I, I was struck by uh, photographs that, yeah, record, uh, that, that depict or, or, you know, that capture these bands, right? One of them is this band from uh, Tulare, California, Central Valley Town, uh, uh, in their performance down in Otay, um, down in the border. And also, um, the way that those photographs informed people's ideas about the past. So there are a couple of different photographs in chapter five where women are dressed in these all white tunics that some of them, the English speaking folks among them would call dusters. And these tunics, I, I think even in the, in the history of, um, or, or rather in, in the a memory of folks, it sort of um, gave too much weight to some extent on how much it it, it um, informed people's ideas of what the past was actually like. So when I would ask about questions, you know, reflecting on what how things have changed, they would say, oh, the women used to wear, used to dress differently, as if to say they used to dress in a much more holy way. But again, I'm not contending whether things are holy or not. Uh, that's up, you know, for folks uh, on the inside to, to determine. What I was interested in is, well, what's the evidence that they used to uh, back that up? And they would say they used to dress in these all white uh, tunics, but those tunics were used for these musical performances, almost like a choir robe of sorts. Um, they were used, um, you know, special services, if you will. And it's interesting because those the photographs of women in the tunics are are preserved in some of the um, the commemorative material. And that led me to also think again about not just sounds, music as a material process, but also sights. That's S-I-G-H-T-S, how people perceive the past to look as a kind of material process in this. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit uh, more specifically about um, the material culture or material history of the apostolic movement. And here it is basically in another line. Um, you can't tell the history of Mexican Pentecostalism in California and farmworker communities without um, doing material history. And material history is women's history. Um, what became most clear to me is the very important role that tamales, the sell of tamales, the making and selling of tamales had in the story um, told in this book. Uh, every, almost everyone I interviewed said, well, churches were built on tamales. And uh, when you ask a few more questions to figure out it's women who are making them on weekends uh, when they're not working out in the fields, when they're not caring for the family. Again, there's this kind of like triple duty labor uh, that's that's uh, assigned to them in this context. And that's how we get churches. And it's also it's interesting that the elevation of males, of, of you know, the preachers, women were not permitted to hold any kind of license um, as the movement um, institutionalized. Uh, the, the elevation of men within the ranks largely depends upon, again, the ability of women to build up these churches, to have a building for the, you know, the, the pastors to pastor in the first place. So that's a whole other thread I'm happy to talk more about. But yeah, material culture, material history was a way to go for me. Oh, that's to really great. understand uh, this. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And, and I, again, I mean, I think this book, uh, not only, again, the 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 the, the, the stories of, is a fascinating story, masterfully told. Uh, so there is that. But then it is also one that, as we you know mentioned when we started our, our talk, the kind of challenges a whole field to broaden its horizon and his out and its and its outlook. Uh, but then, you know, it also kind of have some methodological moves that uh, that, that that they are fascinating. I think that uh, that that it's it's really uh, it, it is it is not 
coincidence that uh, that some of us had to wait a little longer to get the book because it was sold out um, and when it came out uh, with Oxford University Press. I don't know how common that is. It's certainly not something that I hear every day, um, which I think is a testament to the excellence of, uh, of the work that uh, you were already doing, but then that this book um, kind of... Uh, uh, you know, it's an, an important additional step for the, your, your research trajectory. So in terms of uh, of what we can expect next from you, Lloyd, where is your research going uh, now that uh, sowing the, the sacred is out in the world, the story is told, at least the important part of the story that hadn't been told was told there. So what what is next for you? So before I say what's next for me, I'll say what's next for sowing the sacred, a paperback edition. Um, okay. That's actually going to be coming out in the summer. Um, you know, it, it's the nature of academic presses, right? To often come out with a much more expensive uh, hardback. Um, but yeah, uh, this summer, um, there will be a paperback of Sewing the Sacred. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, much, much more affordable. And, um, you know, uh, I'm very thankful for the support people have shown thus far. Um, mm-hmm. So what's next? Um, a couple of different projects. Um, but as far as the, the uh, monograph project, uh, I'm working on a history of the sanctuary movement from the 1980s to um, the more recent iterations of the new sanctuary movement. So that's the phenomenon of undocumented immigrants taking sanctuary in uh, churches. So I'm limiting my study to the U.S., again, from the 80s to, um, to uh, the new sanctuary movement, which kicked off in 2006. Well, officially 2007, but you have, you know, uh, one major case of sanctuary in Chicago in 2006. And then the the entire movement is revived as soon as Trump hasn't even taken office. He's only been elected at this point, right? In November 2016, where you have the movement that has that was revived. So it's a thematic history. So a couple of different um, themes that are I'm uh, that cut across the two movements. Um, is how I'm going to connect the two movements. So there's quite a bit of immigration history, and there's a whole lot, as you can expect from me, of, of religious history. And in, in my own uh, perception uh, of things, uh, the immig- um, immigration history and religious history have a lot more conversations to have with one another. And I think a sanctuary is one productive way of moving that forward. Wonderful. Wonderful. So again, we talked with Lloyd Barba, Sewing the Sacred Mexican Pentecostal Farm Workers in California. You should get this book. It is just wonderful. And do get Thank the paperback. For, <laughs> or the paperback. You know, either one you get. You know, it's, uh, and for the academics, uh, you know, listening, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's uh, hopefully all your libraries have one and uh, and you also have your own copy. I mean, this is fascinating work. If you're interested in, in, in labor history, in the history of immigration, in the history of the of uh, Mexicans, Mexican Americans, of California, uh, of of religion and race in the U.S., those are uh, you know all topics that this book touches on material history. I mean, there's there's a lot here. You should go and get it and read it. It is uh, and, Lloyd. Thank you very much, my brother. Yes, uh, very happy, John. Also, for listeners, uh, I believe the discount still works. A A. F L Y G six. So A A F is in Francisco. L Y G is in grandmother six. Uh, I, I think that still works. It gets uh, you 30% off if you're eager to get it now. 
All right, there you go. There you go. Hopefully that will show in our description of the talk here. So let's test that out. All right. <laughs> th th thanks, Lloyd. Appreciate you, my brother. Good Thank to have you. you here. And we're looking forward to, to what comes next, to doing Thank exciting work. Thank you, John, for the conversation. Much appreciated. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.